You're joining us for another Halloween special. We're talking preternatural morphology. Stay tuned as Dr. Judd Burton returns. Hey, what's happening? It's your boy, Trevor Trev, one half of TBT Hosea 4-6, Truth Be Told, Hosea 4-6 podcast. And we are in our Halloween series and we are in part two with Dr. Judd Burton is back. Uh, if you listen to the last episode, we got into talking about the history of Halloween, its origins, and then looked at the commercialization of Halloween in America. And we also got to talk about Bigfoot, aliens, UFOs. All sorts of things, children with the black eyes, them demons that will manifest, whether you believe it or not, they will manifest, trust and believe. And we're going to get into some more of that uh, pre-natural morphology. Uh, so I was reading in, uh, again, uh, I think they, they, they have quite a few different magazines, but it's National Geographic. This edition is called uh, Science of the Supernatural, Dare to Discover the Truth. And they have a section on vampires. I did not know that there were some 5,000 Americans that see themselves as vampires. This special name is, and I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong. So when Dr. Burton comes on, he can correct me. Sanguinarians. I think that's how it's pronounced. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, in the U.S., it's supposed to be 5,000 Americans that see themselves that way with about 50 living in New Orleans goes on to say many feel they need blood in order to survive and they take part in bloodletting rituals or use animal blood so they can absorb its life force a german study of the sanguinarians i have to slow that down for pronunciation found that a fifth of participants reporting reported drinking about one and a half ounces of blood on average at a time most though carefully select their donors who are screened for bloodborne pathogens and all adhere to the donor bill of rights and agreement between a vampire and their willing supplier they list what is allowed and what is not permissible but do vampires add up mathematically according to a central florida professor costas f-e-e-m-u i think that's how you pronounce the last name spelled e-f-t-h I-M-I-O-U, crunch the numbers and show that killer vampires cannot exist, assuming that the first vampire started feasting at the start of 1600 when Earth's population stood at about 500 million. If it then at one, if it, if it then ate once a month and each snack transformed into a victim, into another hungry vampire, the exponential increase in vampires will wipe out humanity in just two and a half years. So... We are at a crossroads here and Dr. Burton can probably help us walk through a little bit more with some vampires. So we're going to deal with vampires and werewolves and witches and there's something else in there. I think I forgot, but I think those are the main three. So, but Dr. Burton, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So what's going on with vampires? That's uh, that's probably one of the more popular of the costumes that we'll see on uh halloween is right. some vampires a whole lot of vampires running around trying to 
either bite a Snickers bar or bite your neck. Right, right, right. <laughs> thank, thank goodness they're they're after the Twix and Snickers and not anything else. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. These um these sanguinarians that that these sociologists and and uh, statisticians are talking about are, are and of course they would take individual interviews on the on the part of of whatever researchers doing the work. Um, but most of these are, are what what we could probably call vampiroid. In other words, they're they're not, um, you know, they themselves may not have, you know, uh, I mean, there's clearly some demonic influence there. The the level to which there's demonic influence is another uh, another question. But they the, these are humans basically play acting as vampires, even if they. They are sanguivores. They drink blood. Mm -hmm. um, the The true vampire is is demonic and at, at its root. Um, and if you if you interviewed, you know, if you literally had an interview with a vampire for each one of these these people, um, I, I think that you would be able to better quantify which were vampiroids and which were were genuine, you know, people afflicted with a vampiric spirit. Uh, but of course, you don't have to go looking uh, for communities of, of these these vampiroids. I mean, there are all kinds of vampiric elements in our society. Uh, you know, there are plenty of, of Luciferians and Satanists who actively ingest blood and use blood uh, in their ceremony, uh, which smacks of a kind of vampirism as well. Uh, but the yeah, if you if you actually did a kind of ethnography. Of, of each of these people, you would find more details about it. And uh, I used to have an anthropology professor who would say, that's what separates us anthropologists from the sociologists. They do surveys and send out questions. We actually go into the field and talk to people. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah. And not that the quantitative stuff isn't important. It definitely is, but it, you know, it, it the, the qualitative research, the actual, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, you know, actually in, in the culture research uh, is invaluable. Um, but yeah, we're, we're bombarded with all kinds of vampire imagery, aren't we? I mean, pop culture just oh, yeah. will, will not relent because it's, it's, I mean, it's been a popular theme since antiquity. Um, you know, I just reviewed a, a, a program on Netflix called Midnight Mass. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I started that, that one. That's very interesting. It's got some very interesting implications about this connection between the demonic and and vampirism without letting, you know, without I don't want to give a spoiler alert or anything. Right, right. That's that's very much at the heart of, of the story, which is rare. Yeah. Uh in a culture that seems to lionize and and hero heroify uh the vampire so that the vampire becomes the protagonist rather than the enemy <clears throat> you know i was crazy i was um i was looking at some stuff on youtube with some uh romanian witches and mm -hmm. vlad the impaler it's like all of them it's like what 500 some thousand in romania of witches and it's like they say majority of them if not all of them trace their origins to vlad the impaler so wasn't he like the first a non-official official vampire or something well not really he was more okay. like the he was more like the george washington of, of 15th century romania uh <laughs> he, he kept the kept the turks at bay you know so he was a um he was a valuable political figure uh, uh -huh. for the times you know because he along with um 
Janos and Yadi, the Hungarian king, and a number of other Balkan rulers were able to basically stop the influx of um, the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, into Europe. Um, they had made inroads as far as, as Vienna uh, on a number of occasions, which, of course, is farther inland. But suffice to say, um, there's that level of the story of, of Vlad Dracula. And then, then there's the other one that isn't oft, often talked a lot. I don't know if all 500,000 witches in Eastern Europe can trace their roots back to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is, a, there is something that I'm all, often dismayed, but not terribly... Um, surprised by that you know most of your documentaries about vlad the impaler um i'm not saying that the guy wasn't necessarily a psychopath he clearly had a few nuts and bolts that were loose uh and but the demonic side of that uh is the thing that's really never talked about in these documentaries and there are all all manner of traditions and stories around vlad uh that he was part of a a a a secret mystery school called the Sholomonts. Hmm, and the Sholomonts, yeah, the Sholomonts, uh, it's a, the, the word itself is actually a kind of, of, of uh, Slavic derivation of the name of, of Solomon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, people that are familiar with apocryphal accounts of, of Solomon will know right. that, you know, there are all kinds of magical traditions that have sprouted oh, yeah. up. A lot of rabbinical literature. Right, exactly. Greek magical exactly. papyri. Yep. Oh, yeah. I just Absolutely. got to, I had a conversation with my, my older brother recently. Um, He'll send me stuff on Instagram, some type of, everybody talks about how secretive the Vatican is. I'm like, if the Vatican is so secretive, how do y'all know this stuff in, in the first place? Yeah. It was talking about something with Solomon. I was like, I don't, that's not all the way true, but yeah, Solomon and David were connected with able to summon demons or used in exorcisms i think um josephus records i think it's pronounced eleazar eleazar mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right and he used solomon's name ring and mm-hmm. all that other jazz but yeah that's mm-hmm. i told him i said it's much later but anyway <laughs> right right and you know granted you know those sources that we have are, are less in terms of authorship and, and whatnot are, are less mm-hmm. are often less dependable than the ones that we have in the canon of scripture but um suffice it to say that this the sholomance was a, a basically a, an eastern european underground magical and alchemical school uh in which allegedly some of the lessons were actually directly taught by the devil in other words there were a number of individuals that were chosen every year to study at the Sholomats, and there are a number of traditions about Vlad being one of these. Um, and I've always thought that that was one of the more interesting aspects of, of his story. Um, I, I, I've told the story before how I, I how I, I kind of became interested in document-based history. Um, one one year, I asked my parents for. They asked me what I wanted for Christmas. I said, I just want books on vampires and Vlad the Impaler. Oh, wow. Kind of more, kind of morbid, but, but they indulged me. And I, I, I remember I read it. My dad got me a book called, um, uh, the many faces of Dracula by excellent, excellent historical book, by the yeah. way, on, uh, uh, Vlad the Impaler by two, two Eastern European scholars or Slavic scholars, Raymond McNally 
and Radu Florescu. And it was the first book that I'd ever read where I paid attention to the footnotes in the bibliography. And I'm like, oh, this is how you do history. You learn the languages, you mm -hmm. dig into the documents, the primary sources. And so that sort of set me down that track. And so my, my early obsession with, with Eastern European folklore and history, particularly as pertains to, to Vlad, you know, sort of familiarized me with the literature. And so that's one of the interesting things is, is that there seems to be the tendency to, even if, even if Vlad was an inspiration on a literary level for people like Bram Stoker, which he clearly was, um, people seem to shy away from the, the, the darker reality of life. If you can get any darker than, you know, impaling people on spikes um, and not talk about the, the potential validity of his occult associations, um, which would not have been out of character. Um, and by extension, when you look at the history of witchcraft and vampirism, you know, you often see those two things linked together. The same thing right. with, with werewolfism as well, yeah. uh, as there's, a, there's often a kind of, of spellcraft that's involved in the transformation, a kind of dark alchemy, mm -hmm. if you will, involved in the transformation of, of or, or manipulation, whatever, whatever word you want to put in there uh, of, of individuals uh, that, that clearly involves, you know, not only the formulaic end of, of thaumaturgy, how magic, but also the, you know, the direct influence of a demon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm and, sorry. Um, I'll just add to that, but before I go on, we don't get that picture of the vampire mm -hmm. in, in pop culture. What we get is the glossy, handsome teenager. Right. Uh, we get the, uh, the, the, the lone wolf, you know, he's got a good heart, but he's still a killer kind of a thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. We, we've, we've, we've completely made a protagonist out of something that's clearly evil and demonic. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I'm a, my philosophy concerning that is not terribly different from blade the vampire hunter you know where he says it's mm -hmm. open season on all suckheads at least blade can put the vampire in the you know in his in his particular place as the enemy yeah. you know and like so many things in our culture you know we 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 elevate the the profane you know to some some kind of 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 laudatory position and yeah. it's the same thing with these you know like vampires and werewolves and witches and and, and lots of things yeah like uh Van Helsing, the movie. Uh -huh. I like the movie, Van. That's one of my favorite movies, Van right. Helsing. Yeah. Right. Is there, is there any type of I wondered about this like occult teaching because uh the vampire and Van Helsing was like we were once brothers in heaven and mm -hmm. is there is there a connect, like some type of is that like from the occult teaching the doctrine or something? That uh you, you mean that that um I don't know if you saw the movie with Van Helsing, the, the vampire, the main dude, vampire. He was like, I forgot what he, I think he called him Adam. And then uh, the I forgot what the vampire was, but they were brothers mm -hmm. in heaven. And God kicked the one out and he, he um, ended up becoming. Yeah. You know, there's a very similar theme that was explored in uh, the Penny Dreadful series uh, hmm. that came out a few years ago. Um because the two main villains were Lucifer and um, Dracula, and it, they were made made out as if both of them were were angels in heaven at one point in time, but they were cast down. Um, 
now obviously there's some literary license you know being taken there with the stories and the writing and stuff uh but the link between the demonic um and uh and i'm speaking generally in the demonic which would include both fallen angels and and unclean spirits and the hierarchy that exists there but that that link between the demonic and and the vampire and these other creatures uh form the basis for the curriculum that i have uh in my preternatural morphology program uh and the forthcoming uh the van helsing way book that i'm doing um I don't think I don't see how you can get around it. And really, really the first person that I ever read that made this connection with the pre-flood spirits of the Nephilim that became the unclean spirits and things like vampires and werewolves was Montague Summers. Mm-hmm. And uh, in his uh, the vampire is Kith and Ken. And I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. This guy's, you know, referencing. Of course, he was brilliant. You know, the guy spoke probably a dozen languages and the, his, the bibliographies in his books are ridiculous. Uh, but I thought that's really interesting. He's, he's making direct citations from Enoch and Genesis pre-flood world oh, and wow. connecting those spirits with, you know, the, um, these kinds of manifestations that have sort of been, you know, since the advent of a materialistic worldview have sort of been peripheralized, you know, and marginalized as, as simply folkloric, you know, elements in culture, but they represent real experiences to people in space and time in reality. Mm-hmm. And even if a portion of those are, are simply folktale, what do you do with the other percentage? Right. Which is something that, that, that conventional scholarship seems to have a hard time dealing with because it's so married to this naturalistic materialistic view of the universe mm-hmm. um well for the last 10 years philosophers who who don't have any uh necessarily grounded interest in a purely materialistic uh, uh view of reality or our world have been picking holes in the purely materialistic philosophy of the cosmos. Uh, it just doesn't add up because we can do things now, like look at the cell at a microscopic level right. uh, at levels that we've never been able to do. And now biologists are having to rely more on engineering design theory rather than the evolu- the, you know, sort of punctuated equilibrium evolutionary model. They're like, well, this, the inner workings of this thing, you know, the implicit here is a design. Well, mm-hmm. that, that means that there's some kind of a designer, right? you know, behind it. So we're already starting to see that that, that worldview, despite, despite its embrace, you know, it's hearty embracement doesn't really work logically mm-hmm. uh, anymore. And so, you know, sort of circling back to, um, you know, what do you do with all these other, other experiences? Well, you, you know, it's like Sherlock Holmes says, uh, when you eliminate the impossible, uh, whatever you're left with, however improbable has to be the truth. It has to be that these, ex- these experiences are real and happen in real space and time dealing with real entities. And then we get back into the people that actually experience this stuff in the cultures themselves. Uh, and you talk to, you know, today, you know, take the time to talk to a missionary and ask them about this stuff. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're on the vanguard of it. They, they, they've been seeing it in the mission field for 
decades and centuries. Mm -hmm. Um, we're just so sheltered from it in our society that we've made, you know, we've, I don't want to be too hyperbolic, but we've made teddy bears out of demons. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I was, I was reading your book, um, necromancers. I, 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 I'm starting to dig into that a whole lot. Yeah. God, Godwin's book. Yeah. Excellent Godwin, resource. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah. I'm on this sub, I'm on this subject portion of sorcery and he's talking about the, the A and the O, if you know what I'm talking about, the Armanius, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, so he's talking about how, you know, they the sorcerers, they would whatever magic, whatever they were doing. And, uh, you know, these different type of beings would pop through these, you know, I think the Greek gods, or they use a Greek god name. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he gets to the, the one where they said legion, and he starts to describe what they can do. It's like, nah, they're not no, you know, it's not no fluff and puff. This stuff is some some serious stuff. You know, mm-hmm. you go and look at, you know, some writings, maybe if you cannot read, you know, ancient Sumerian or what which majority of people cannot, mm-hmm. you know, select individuals that study. That's their couple, you know, that's their PhD mm-hmm. work, you know, they can do all that. But you can read the translations in the English or whatever your, your native language might be. Yeah. And you see people thousands of years back writing about what these beings could do and how Mm -hmm. fearful they became and Mm -hmm. almost on the edge Mm -hmm. of what might happen. Because, like, I think it was the Babylonians. I mean, even if you got sick, they they performed an exorcism. Mm hmm. And I was reading in the same magazine, was, they were talking about an archaeological discovery they made. I forgot which country, obviously European country, but they found how this jaw, a human human head jaw, had, um, I think, a brick inside of it. And they said it was uh, exorcism to prevent that person from raising from the dead and going to suck somebody's blood. I think you're talking about the necropolis outside of Rome. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Fifth yeah. century. Yeah, that was an, that was a really interesting find. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even I mean, reading about the uh, like what uh, Bab- uh, in the ancient Near East with because um, I'm just going to say in Babylon, Syria, Mesopotamia, all that. Sure. Yeah. You know, ancient Near East. So they thought some spirits would would have the ability to suck your blood. Mm-hmm. And this is you looking at thousands of years before you actually get to, you know, count Dracula. And I found sure. I was reading a story. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Like Dracula's family, supposedly the story behind that, his family was into some dark stuff. And then yeah. he was, this, you know, like turning into some type of demon. He was the offspring of that black magic, whatever they were working. Mm-hmm. So. Well, see, that's that's kind of the untold story, you know, that I was yeah. talking about. And I, I, I had a, a buddy of mine who's a filmmaker wants to do a documentary on it. And I said, I'm, I'm game. Because I think that that's the, that's a side of the story that hasn't been told, mm-hmm. um, you know, that will bring out, you know, so many people have wanted to just boil it down to, you know, this, like I said, the sort of George Washington-esque side of, right. um, of the political side of, of his story. Yeah. Um, but, th- but there's more to it, especially if he was involved with this Sholomance thing. Yeah. Um, but it, it's very interesting that you bring up the ancient Near East stuff, uh, 
you know, I, I've pointed out on a number of occasions that the, you know, there are references to, to vampiric activity throughout the Bible, and probably the most in-your-face one is the Isaiah chapter thirty-four, where you actually have a reference to uh, Lilith. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. most translations render Lilith's name as Screech Owl or Night Demon. Mm-hmm. Um, no doubt owing to both of those owing to her elements of her nature, but by not rendering the name, um, you, you kind of lose the, the uh, specificity uh, of the traits of, of Lilith. And of course, Lilith was a, that's an idea that goes back to, you know, a, an entity really that goes back to um, early Mesopotamian thought. We find, you know, Lilith references and imagery all over their literature. Oh yeah, big time. Uh, and she was the, uh, you know, she was the, the the queen of demons. She she fed on the blood of, of infants and and children. Mm-hmm. And I think it, men too, right? It was one. I yes, think, yeah, yes. When she started um, to, yeah, she would. But again, it's that taking of, uh, you know, in the case of the children, it's the blood. But she would take the virility and life force of men. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's that key component is the stealing of 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 life force, sometimes in the form of energy, sometimes in the form of, of blood. That right. is the perennial shared feature of vampires through through all space and time, all over the cultures of the world uh, from time immemorial down to the present. And, you know, I mean, there it is right in the Old Testament you know, staring you right in the face and, and, and to add to the, to the strangeness, Lilith is, re- is referenced in conjunction with the shedding uh, yes. that's usually mistranslated as he goats. Those are satyrs. Mm-hmm. Those are, those are goat demons. The, uh, the half, the half goat, half man, uh, sort of pan imagery, um, you know, so, you know, again, it, like it's like our buddy Mike Heiser says: if it's strange and it's in the Bible, then it's probably important. You probably it, it, this gives us a, a clear, clearer look at to look at how diverse and how complicated, in many cases, the the demonology of the Old Testament world was, and and yeah. how the Hebrews looked at the world that they were living in um, and how, in fact, that that's not something that is just bound up in the dogma of, of some sort of time prism. uh, But it's, it's in fact, timeless. It's not just for the cultural context there, but these entities are still around today. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And we're still, yeah, go ahead. I was saying, um, and to show that connection, um, I was trying to find an Ed, Edward Langton, a lot of, and I found a lot of the older material is, you know, very open about writing about the subject. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, you See, know what I'm saying? It's like a lot. Yeah, of I know. I know exactly yeah. what you're saying because <laughs> I mean, it's, there's a lot of good solid work that's being done in the modern era too. Right. But you have to be really picky about it. Yeah. Um, because some people want to kind of, you know, dismiss it and right, right. That's you why know, you know, I, I've got so many of the texts that I use in my my courses are, you know, they're written before 1950. Yeah, 
because so many of the scholars, you know, this is before postmodernism, you know, just oh, yeah, yeah. gutted, gutted all of our intellectual traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were all these scholars that were willing to, you know, look at, um, I mean, in every field, not just theology, but every, you know, history, classics, archaeology, anthropology, you know, basically all the social sciences and humanities or will, people willing to look at the supernatural, um, you know, for its own sake, not mm-hmm. just not just not just the just as some sort of commodity, you know, that they could that they could turn into an exhibit or, or uh, a book or something or a lecture tour or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. They were w- willing to actually, you know, look at it from the context of the culture that it came from and say, okay, these people say that they're having this experience or they had this experience right. in the case of something historical. Um, you know, perhaps since they were there experiencing it, we should pay more attention to it, you know, and consider, consider its historicity, its validity. Mm-hmm. Um And that's what was so exciting about anthropology, you know, during this time, during the the kind of golden age of anthropology in the early 20th century is because we were learning so much about by studying people that were living in a, 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 that still kind of had the mythological mind, you know, like people in antiquity, anthropologists were studying, you know, lots of non-industrial, non-literate traditions, Stone Age culture, basically in the modern world. So yeah. the Troverian Islanders and the Australian Aborigines and, um, you know, people in West Africa and the, the Dogon and, um, mm-hmm. you know, just on and on and on. There, there were all these cultures that still were basically living like Stone Age hunter-gatherers. Yeah. And their mindset was that they were still, they still looked at the world through this mythological prism. Mm-hmm. And... I'll never forget when I was in grad school, you know, I I read uh, a lot of Branislaw Malinowski, who worked with the South Pacific um, Trobrand Islanders, and he wrote this incredible book, again, (laughs) pre-1950, wrote this incredible book about science, magic, and religion, Mm. and how those those concepts were interchangeable in in cultures like this, and he he said something that that really stuck with me about... um, you know, as he had been studying not only the mythology of the Troberand Islanders, but kind of ethnologically mythology in general in many cultures, the, the, the conclusion he came to is that, you know, myth, mythology is not some idle rhapsody. You know, it's not just art for art's sake. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, the, it's really the, the, the ocean that culture floats in for yeah. these people. Yeah. And I mean, everything, their economy, their politics, their their kinship, uh, their uh, 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 their language, their their very ideation their material culture. All of it was bound up and tied tied together by mythology. And you go back in antiquity. When people were more more apt to think like that and people are thinking like, Hebrews are thinking like that in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, we've we've just we become so afraid of the word myth in the church because it's so misunderstood and abused yeah. in Western languages uh, that, that we think that, that, you know, and, and there it is. I mean, it's a concept that, that lays open things like the divine council and uh, you know, this war for, you know, against supernatural good and evil and um, that at any rate, 
anthropologists really sort of had the jump on these other fields because they were they were taking these elements of supernaturalism from these cultures and beginning to weigh them on their own merits mm-hmm. in terms of, of these people's experiences and also how they thought, you know, their intellectual uh, process. Um, and slowly but surely, there were people, there are other scholars from other fields uh, from like theology, classics, history, mm-hmm. who began to who began to think, well, I wonder if we apply these models to our scholarship, what we might be able to find new. And then you start getting books like The World of Odysseus by Moses Finley, uh, who took who basically read the Homeric literature like a like an ethnographer's transcript, like an anthropologist would. Mm-hmm. And he found out all this new stuff about the imagery that Homer was using was not from the Mycenaeans or Minoans. It was from, it was from the, the dark age Greeks, you know, the, the, the figure eight shields and the boar tusk helmets and all of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's whole depth, you know, added to that. And then you had Ward Fowler who came out with this huge exhaustive book on Roman religion saying that, look, no, 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 no. We've misunderstood the way that the Romans understood their gods. It wasn't the way that the Greeks did. That didn't happen until they came in context into contact with the Greeks. Initially, the Romans looked at their gods as 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 non-anthropomorphic, mm-hmm. as some, something without human form yeah. uh, and personalities and entities of their own. Um, all because of all because because a handful of anthropologists were willing to to consider the possibilities. Um. Mm. But, you know, like I say, here comes here comes the hammer of postmodernism and it destroys this, con- you know, or dil- dilutes it first. It's all but destroyed it now. This concept of objective truth and how that could potentially be be applied to the supernatural. Yeah. Um, so that, like you say, I mean. These guys from like the 19th and, and 20 early 20th, mid 20th centuries were willing to to look at the supernatural on its own merits as a potential reality. Yeah. You had, you know, you had a, I, 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 in that time period, you know, like, like you was saying, I mean, you had Alistair Crowley who was considered mm-hmm. the most evil man. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's no coincidence that, you know, he lived in Loch Ness and you got the Loch Ness monster. I still think, no, <laughs> you know, there's some type of connection there. Um, sure. As far as you know, that Loch Ness and Alistair Crowley is concerned. Mm-hmm. But anyways, you know, then you had Parsons and you had L. Ron Hubbard to do that Babylon working, and then mm-hmm. Parsons was cooking up other stuff on the side anyway. Yeah, but he called had, he called his rocket fuel magical elixirs. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you had I mean that dude was into some heavy stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, uh, you had spiritism on the rise, mm-hmm. and. You had a lot of, and I'm not talking about, you know, well, I grew up in Pentecostal anyway, so I can say what I'm saying. But that's that whole movement, the phenomenon of, you know, tongues and what have you. And, it, mm-hmm. you know, so you have this openness to a supernatural, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, a lot of revivals breaking out. Yeah. Um, but, you know, just going back, I think like a lot of my works, dealing with like the open topic and going deep into it are, are much older books. You know, there was um, recently, I think he's out of Harvard university. Um, I'll find the article and say, you may already have it. Um, but the PhD in uh, psychiatry came out 
a medical doctor, I'm sorry, in psychiatry came out. He's a professor. And he says he he believes flat out schizophrenia is demonic possession. He was like, we have got to start considering demonic possession in schizophrenia. And they ate right. him alive. He's like, there's some yeah. people that ate him up over that. It was like, oh, this is this is one size religion, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. He was like, look, they're doing stuff that we cannot explain. Yeah. I never forget a story. It was uh, it was this radio show. He's come on here where I'm at. And uh, the pastor was in North Carolina. And uh, they were having a service. And he said at the end of the service, there was a doctor there, a medical doctor, ER doctor. And he came up to the pastor and he said, uh, you know, talk to him. He said, and the pastor said, you know, he said, I, I just felt like someone wanted me to ask me what, what, why is he here? So I went and asked him, why is he here? The pastor said, I had to find out what we were dealing with. Mm-hmm. And he said, what do you mean? He said, and he went to explain, he said, we got people, you know, restrained on the bed with the toughest stuff, breaking it just all sorts of languages, this deep mm-hmm. voice coming out of them. And you see mm-hmm. uh, uh, the priestess of Delphi, that mm-hmm. deep voice, that change of voice. And, you know, I was telling several people, I was like, I mean, if you look in the magical, the Greek magical papyri and, you know, you mm-hmm. got all the UFO talk now with the water. Oh, they're hovering in water. They're going in water. Well, one mm-hmm. of the seven spirits that they record is over the ocean, mm-hmm. in the ocean. It can maneuver. So, you know, but just going back, um, what um, Edward Langton was saying about the seven spirits, like they are like, and he says, like he said, these seven demons are said to bring storms, tempests, which is just mm-hmm. violent wind and all that mm-hmm. other, you know, like tornadoes and hurricanes. Mm-hmm. And he said, to work all manner of evil in the lives of men, they are compared with vampires or bloodsuckers. Mm-hmm. And this is old. This is, you know, Greek magical papyri dates from 400 CE, if I'm not. 400 bc to mm-hmm. 400 ad if i'm not mm-hmm. mistaken mm-hmm. you know so you got 800 years of you know all, yeah, all sorts and, of, and that, of vampire spirits that's just when it was written down who knows right. for how long that existed you <laughs> know behind closed back. doors or, or orally yeah yeah and you know and and it connects uh he talks about the three because it was lilith lilithu and ardette lilith i think it was three of them, two females and a male. But then mm-hmm. Lilith popped up. But Lilith was a uh, was a night demon, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, well, it probably explains why a lot of people have sleep paralysis. Although I know the sure. science of behind that, but I mean, yeah. it's no coincidence. People talking about, man, someone's in my room. I saw that that thing got on top of me. I couldn't do it. It's like, well, something's sucking you, you know. And it's, it's I'm, I'm telling you, Trevor, I was talking with my brother about this very same thing earlier today. This very same thing about <laughs> about the disease and the demonic there's no there is no reason why they have to be mutually exclusive yeah. i mean if anything uh i mean especially people in the church believers should know that that's that's the case and and now you've got you know like this guy you're talking about the psychiatrist these these brave people that are that are dealing with this from the clinical end they're like that's where our playbook ends. You know, yeah. we need to start to consider some other possibilities, mm-hmm. you know, and of course, I mean, look at Jesus's ministry. Yeah. He healed the sick, but how often were those cases tied with, you know, demonization Evil of one spirit, sort, of, right. he one would have sort to or another? Yeah. Yes. And he, yeah. And he, I mean, that phraseology is even used unclean spirits. So, yes. I mean, we know the identity of them. They're these disembodied spirits of the Nephilim. From the pre-flood world. Um, right. And when you look at the nature of demons, they, they one, they cannot stand people. They want to cause as much 
you know, ill to man or to, mm-hmm. you know, man, and I'm speaking mankind in general. Sure. Yeah. They want to destroy life. Yeah. And they will destroy life any way possible, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, we had another site, we had actual psychiatrists on it, you know, that works with different uh, religious organizations to help them to say, look, this is, this person is mentally well, something else is going on. He had an incident where it was like three o'clock in the morning and his cats were acting up. Like this started fighting. He was like, no, my cats mm-hmm. are fine. And he said the next day he got a knock at his door with a Catholic priest and this lady, um, he, he, you know, changed all the names in the book to protect obviously HIPAA law. Sure. And she was called in the book called Julia, the satanic queen. And she, first thing she said to him was, how did you like those cats doc? He said it freaked him out in the book, part of my language in the book. He said, what the hell did you bring to my house? He was, he was frightened. He was like literally shocked. And so that's what I'm saying. Like people think like the demonic and supernatural is, you know, play play and oh no, they're good spirits. I was with some stuff with ayahuasca people's testimony. Ayahuasca like, dude, y'all are not, this is, you know, this is some serious stuff y'all getting into. I mean, like with DMT, ayahuasca and y'all acid, man. My brother told me a story about a dude. He knew that they haven't seen him at work in a year because he, he did acid last year. And he's in the mental institution. Yes. Our, you know, our brains make a certain amount of DMT naturally. Right. And I'm, naturally. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that that's, it probably was, was greater uh, in periods past, but I'm convinced that that's part of that. I mean, God wouldn't have put that there if we weren't supposed to have it. Right. It plays some role in our, 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 our supernatural nature. What's the name? But when you start uh, DMT, yeah, yeah the, the Strassman. Yeah, that's a, yeah. that's ex- those are exactly the studies that I'm thinking about that he did with the priests and the monks, and they mm. were all praying and meditating, and you could actually he could see elevated levels of DMT in the brain. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain amount that our body manufactures. Now I, I have no doubt that's by design. But when you start taking in, ingesting in greater amounts from these outside sources. You know, in the form of places, things like yahe and ayahuasca, or yeah. you know, anything that has DMT in it, um, people are are taking a key first of all that they don't have the knowledge to handle. And I'm speaking about everybody, not just people mm-hmm. that that take it. But you're using that key to open a door that is dangerous beyond the anything you can imagine because of what's what's behind it and look at the similarities of reports of what people see there you know among mm-hmm. amongst the commonalities are are the kinds of entities that they see yeah uh reptilian in, entities um uh clowns that are very reminiscent of the kachina uh uh dolls in the american southwest with these these geometric uh, black and white patterns all over them mm-hmm. um you know, there's a laundry list of them that, that people report. Um, now, some people's experiences are euph- euphoric, but they, they often descend into these other, you know, often not infrequently menacing uh, kinds of experiences. And that that's that removal of the veil, so to speak, um, to the this supernatural reality that's all around us, I think. Um, But it, you know, there's something about it that allows people to traffic with these spirits 
these entities um, on a on a on a more fundamental level that makes it so dangerous and reckless. Oh yeah, there's some um, there's but, some stories of uh, people. I heard this one girl story. And uh, we don't mean to get off subject here. We just talking. No, we're we're on top. I mean, I mean, witches witches have used uh, historically have used all kinds of hallucinogens and ointments. So this is just another version of that. So we do, yeah, we bleeding right into it. So yeah, this this young lady was talking, and she's straight, you know, new age. She said I was atheist, and then I'm. She said I'm spiritual, but I mean, she's straight new age. But she was warning people not to do ayahuasca. She says stay away from it. She's yeah. not a Christian. She had no yeah. skin again. She said, stay away from it. She said uh, yeah. I, her one story. She was saying, you know, when you go on these uh, trips to do ayahuasca, she was like, they give you an option to stay by yourself or stay with a group where she went mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. And somebody had, you know, experienced to where this black entity mm-hmm. was in their room and it scared them half to death. And they went to go get their um, shaman and the shaman said, yeah, something is you got something following you. They call it an mm-hmm. ego death. You have mm-hmm. an ego death. Yeah, That's what they ego call death. It. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And um, so they went back to get this girl and they said, it's not safe for you to stay by yourself tonight. Somebody has attracted a dark entity. You know, and I'm looking at people having, you know, I wonder how many people have had paranormal or preternatural experiences when they get back home that something has yeah. followed them because they, they opened the door because, you know, like anything, you got to let them in, you know, they're looking for yeah. an avenue to get your mind and yeah. whatever they got to do, whatever they got to look like, you know, a dancing mushroom, you know, whatever your poison is, what they're going to come at you with, you know, they want you to open that door. But, mm-hmm. um, so, uh, Final conclusion on vampires will say they're demonic in origin, as you heard Dr. Burden say. Yeah. But Dr. Burden, um, with witches, this kind of speaks along, but witches, as you were talking about, they use hallucinogenics. Can you expound on that origin of witches and then their practices? Yeah. Well, I mean, as I said, many times, you know, the, the traditions of witchcraft, um, I suppose we should probably define that problematic word. Uh, yes, please. It's, please. it's um, Really, you don't have to go much further than that. I, I, I still think the anthropological definition of witch is still accurate. It's a person that operates um, outside the accepted cultural norm in a given society uh, and uses um, uses magic uh, for their own ends or for nefarious ends, uh, mm-hmm. and often through the bending or twisting of the natural order. And I, I, I did a chapter in a, a revised version of Interview with the Giant called The Primal Witch, um, in which this model of now not necessarily talking about neo-pagan witchcraft. I, you know, I don't want to retread those tires. There's abundant literature on that, both mm-hmm. scholastic written by witch, uh, Wiccans and witches, you know, within those traditions and also uh, plenty of Christian authors have talked about it as well. I'm talking about the Luciferian satanic patient zero witch Mm. and the model for this come you know that demonic tutelage the familiar um their 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 teacher the model for this comes to us from the pre-flood world this is exactly what the watchers did they exchanged this knowledge which was a combination of practical sciences and occult tradition occult practices 
um, for genetic access, basically. That was the, mm -hmm. that was the, sort of the implicit proposition. Um, and so you had the, the the watchers teaching this stuff to the you know not just the observance of the stars and the the calendrical sciences and stuff like that, but right. You know the root cutting and the enchantments and the you know the uh, abortion and, and everything mm -hmm. else that they taught. Um, that's the model right there is the one on one, which which is what makes the the solitary practitioner the self uh, self styled even the small covens of of these kinds of witches. The mo these are the true Luciferian satanic witches. They they enter into a blood pact uh for this sort of thing and this fits nicely with the anthropological definition you've got an individual who's operating against the 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 moral standard of a given culture and using magical means for nefarious ends by the twisting and bending of nature mm -hmm. uh and it's that that definition fits for for most cultures around the world i would say 95 percent of them define a witch as such, whether you're talking about people in the American Southwest uh, or uh, the Congo or um, rural regions of Central Asia, you know, they all define a witch along along these lines. And so that's that's what we're talking about in terms of witchcraft right here. Now, the hallucinogenic end of it, um, you know, witches are 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 in many traditions often considered shapeshifters themselves so that yeah. uh, in the aforementioned native traditions, the, the, in the syncretistic traditions of the American Southwest, where you have both the, the indigenous traditions and the old world traditions combining, witches are, are very often shapeshifters uh, and use hallucinogenic uh, herbs like peyote and uh, datura ghost weed mm -hmm. uh, to make um you know these salves that they would rub rub on their bodies and this was supposed to facilitate the change into a, a coyote or a, a, a crow or owl or or snake or whatever um and you see this kind of thing you know in old world witchcraft you know take take the instances of, of werewolfism um there are a number of accounts uh, that deal with the the mixing of, of this sort of hallucinogenic uh, salve uh, that they would rub on to facilitate the change into a wolf, um, and this even goes back to older traditions like the the berserkers from Norse tradition, uh, who would ingest these hallucinogenic mushrooms, uh, and then they would they would urinate and drink the urine because it was concentrated after that, and so they would get the oh, double wow. effect. Uh, and go into a kind of, of battle fury mm -hmm. uh, over it. And the reason they were called berserkers, berserker means bearskin in old Germanic. And they, they believed that they, you know, and probably in some cases did take on the form of a bear or a wolf because they would wear these bear and wolf pelts mm -hmm. as a kind of totemistic medium uh, for that supernatural power to come through them. And of course, these hallucinogenic elements, these mushrooms were involved in the process, um, you know, and on and on and on. We could spend hours and hours just going over the, the ethnographic and historical data uh, that, that points to these accounts of, of hallucinogens being used in conjunction with witchcraft, not infrequently to facilitate shape-shifting. Yeah. Let me, okay, um, so with, with witches, it's popular 
two things, well, really three things I'm looking at. The broom, the black cat, and uh, the pentagram. Can mm-hmm. you touch on those briefly? Sure. Um, the hat's probably an easy one. Um, and here, I think the historians and sociologists probably have it right. You know, these are the these were an in-style sort of hat that, that women in, um, in early modern and late medieval Europe wore. Uh, and they were often, you know, if their husbands had passed on before mm-hmm. they lived, they, they lived alone. They often lived on the edges of towns and things like that. Uh, and so all kinds of pariahs got heaped on them, you know, in, in terms of what they were. And so that hat became associated with the old crone. The broom is a little more uh, involved in terms of its cultural legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, this, it's, it's an old tradition that goes back to, um, uh, phallic symbology. And so the broom itself becomes a, a, a phallic symbol, um, because we have a number of historical accounts of, you know, these meetings of covens in which pe- women are, are, are basically dancing around bonfires astride, uh, brooms. And I've, I've heard plenty of, um, stories from the old country uh, in northern Mexico for my students when I used to teach at South Texas College um, on the border mm-hmm. uh, of a lot of, of old country stories of, of, of brujas, which is right. using, using brooms to fly. And so there's a, the ceremonial end of it that it's, it's a phallic symbol, uh, but there's also the sort of functional magical end of it as a kind of, of, of scepter or talisman of sorts. Wouldn't that be kind of like levitation with Yes. Uh right. yeah. Um light as a is, feather stiff which, as a board. Which is not outside the purview of the practice of, of witches. Um, yeah. because you know again, um there are all kinds of, of traditions of witches, you know, flying uh through the air using different different implements to do that. Um one of the more disturbing stories that I ever heard. And this is actually from one of my best, best students I've ever had. Um, and we got to be, we got to be pretty good friends. And so he, he, he related a number of stories that he heard, but this one was the most disturbing about how, um, his uncle back in Mexico, uh, he was a man of some learning. He was an attorney actually, uh, you know, very logically minded, you know, not, not prone to exaggeration. Mm-hmm. Uh, told him about how um, witches traveled in the form of fireballs across oh, wow. the sky. And this is a tradition not only in northern Mexico, but the American desert southwest as well. Wow. And for people that want to know more about that, I highly recommend uh, Mark Simmons' book on uh, witchcraft in the southwest. But the uh, the way that they dealt with, with these witches traveling in fireballs is that once they saw them, that the first, the first night they saw them the next night, uh, they put down crosses on the ground. That is the, the, the men at the Hacienda did mm-hmm. and, and put nails in the four corners and left them out the second night. Well, they saw the fireballs again, but in the morning when they went out, 
they saw these old women nailed to these crosses. Oh, wow. And they were begging to be let off of them. Um, this is folklore. This is actually real this, It's both. Okay. That's okay. what I'm saying. It's, it's not, you know, it, you know, going back to how these anthropologists in the early 20th century approach this stuff. Yes, it's folklore, but it's all, it's also represents real experiences that people right. had. Yeah. Um, and like I said, I, I have a chain of, of reliability here from one of my best students and whose uncle was a, an attorney, not prone to exaggeration of any kind who related this. And of course, that's not the first time that I had heard that story in particular, because it's in the literature mm -hmm. of the American Southwest and Northern Mexico. Uh, anthropologists have been working on that stuff, you know, for, and people, you know, writers of all kinds have been writing about it for decades. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's what I'm saying is that uh, that element of flying is is sometimes tied with the broom levitation sometimes tied with the yeah. broom but it, it takes other forms uh in some cases as well i've heard uh, astral projection too with the yeah. broom. okay yep mm -hmm. that's that's also another element um the pentagram is a very old symbol that um undoubtedly is prehistoric i mean i, I think that this does go back to the the age of the watchers mm -hmm. um but it in in most um, most traditions of witchcraft, of course, the the, the pentagram itself has become a, a, a sigil of neo paganism. You know, the modern witches and druids and whatnot. But it, it it's it's almost a near universal symbol for uh, the the four classical elements bounded by the spirit. In other words, there are four the four bottom points deal with. You know, the classical four elements, earth, air, um, fire, and water. Mm -hmm. And the upper point is spirit. Um, and it was generally considered a, a, a positive symbol. Um, but like, you know, all kinds of, of, you know, geometry that's built into creation, you know, not by accident, it was... It's misused and twisted by these practitioners, um, and even more so by Luciferians and Satanists who flip the pentagram, and you have the Baphomet sigil, mm -hmm. uh, which contains the not only the the imagery of the devil, the imagery yeah. of Satan, uh, but in the you have the Ouroboros around it. Um, the, the snake eating, eating its own tail mm -hmm. uh, and written in Hebrew around that sigil is, are the words Levi. It's the word Leviathan. Um, this is around Baphomet. The, uh... This is around the, ba it's okay. on the Baphomet sigil. Yeah. If you look at it, gotcha. there are those five Hebrew characters where the points of the star uh -huh. would be, and they spell out Leviathan. Wow. I had no idea about that. Yeah. Um, it, it's, you know, again, it's one of those things that's hiding in plain sight. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, they're showing their calling card, not just by the, I mean, you've got, you've got the, the deviltry symbolism there, but you've also got a Zazel uh, symbology with the, right. the goat head. And then you've got the serpent with the, the Ouroboros, the literally the, the Leviathan, the, the wreath serpent, as it would have been translated in, in um, Hebrew or, or, 
or more to the point, um, uh, Phoenician, Ugaritic. Yeah. Um, the black cat. Why are people so afraid of black cats as far as like when they cross your path and then why, you know, why are they connected with witches? I'm saying like, you know, well, yeah. Oh, well, I, I, you know, it's again, it's difficult to separate out. You know, on the one hand, you had, you know, it's kind of like the old cat lady, you know, scenario. Yeah. It's, it's, the old ladies took care of all the runaways and stuff, you know, the mm-hmm. cats and stuff would gather around. So there was that end of it. But then there was a kind of totemistic end to it as well. In, in other words, um, there are accounts of, of which is keeping these animals um, or, or these animals being around because they were the actual demons that took their, their totemic animal forms uh, in her presence. Hmm. So, you know, again, these are accounts that, that, that probably do represent, you know, real experiences. Um, that's why I, I'm always quick to say that, look, just because you have these, these accounts or elements of folklore or, or ethnography or whatever that seem on the surface to be um, different or contradicting, they don't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive. It's like we're talking about the disease and the demonic. Those two don't have to be mutually exclusive. Right. Um, so you've got those two elements there associated with not just black cats, but all manner of animals, you know, owls and crows and, you know, mm-hmm. just all kinds of animals associated. With. Those are largely um, old world traditions, um, you know, from, from like, western central and eastern europe mm-hmm. uh that got imported but of course you know there are other animal traditions that are associated with witchcraft around you know as it exists in other parts of the world not infrequently associated with shape-shifting into an animal itself yeah uh, and so like, you've got like yeah you've got several valences here in terms of, of animal associations okay all right um we looking like on time. All right, if you briefly, because I know some people might want to know black magic and white magic. What is the difference? Because you hear witches, modern witches say, "Oh, I do white magic. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't dabble in black." And then there's some that say, "Look, I dabble in blo- both. Don't cross me." Mm-hmm. What is the difference in either? Well, from the perspective of the practitioner, white magic, of course, is the would would be the the non-threatening kind mm-hmm. you know ostensibly and then black magic would be the the uh, you know the sort of nefarious uh right ill ill meaning kind and there are levels on both sides you know are you talking about folk magic or the the more formulaic thaumaturgy on both sides of the end problem is is that most of the people that subscribe to an interpretation of either white magic or black magic or any kind of magic, you know it's all the same is that they often subscribe to a kind of of a a moralism or moral relativism mm-hmm. in other words um you know uh, uh, good and evil are, are relative terms defined by the context of a given situation Mm-hmm. We, we were talking before the show about, right. about voodoo um and that's a prime example they, their theology dictates that that good and evil are determined by situation not by some rigid moral code mm-hmm. um and the same can be said for mo- most practitioners of occult traditions is that they don't believe in um 
you know, a, a, a rigid morality. It's a flexible kind of morality. Um, you know, and lo and behold, why should we be surprised that those kinds of ideas have snuck into our own culture, our own society at large? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm talking about moral relativism yeah. uh, and have become, uh, you know, so thoroughly accepted in, in this, particularly in the wake of postmodernism. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's what they mean really by white and, and black magic, but looking holistically at, at magical traditions, those, you can't really make those distinctions, even if something seems to be benevolent because it belongs to a magical tradition that, that doesn't acknowledge, uh, a, a, a fixed morality. Yeah. Um, and you know, everything, I, I mean, I understand between the black and the, and the white, I think maybe like the medieval times, the Catholic church put out white magic was okay because it would help. Yes. People. Because, because even, even under the auspices of the Catholic church and in, in let's say medieval or even early modern, you know, Renaissance era Europe, mm-hmm. there were a, a, a parade of things that were tolerated by the church, um, astrology, numerology, or, yeah. you know, to some extent were considered acceptable practices. Mm-hmm. Um, but even, uh, you know, in certain parts of Europe, even things like, like prostitution were allowed by the Catholic church. The, the rationale being that, uh, look, if you don't let guys blow off steam, you know, the crime rate is going to go up and you think murder is bad now or whatever, you know, it's just these strange little rationalizations yeah, yeah, of stuff that clearly goes against, you know, biblical morality. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you, as you point out, um, you know, a lot, a lot of these magical traditions were protected. And if people <clears throat> want to learn more about this and the kind of, excuse me, <coughs> goodness, if people want to learn more about how these traditions became syncretized with uh, church belief and church law, I would highly recommend the works of uh, people like um, Carlo Ginsberg and uh, especially a book by a, a micro historian called, um, his name was uh, uh, Guido Ruggiero, and the book is called Binding Passions, and it, it illustrates the syncretism. Um, between those Christian practices and beliefs and the magical, older magical traditions that existed in Europe. Yeah. Everything I've read, uh, you know, thus far, it's, uh, you know, what magic, even some older material is, you know, even going back to Babylon was, you know, and they talked about how powerful witch was at this time was that the Mm -hmm. demon adhered to the witch. And so Mm -hmm. when they're performing an exorcism, they weren't concerned so much about the demon. They were more mm-hmm. so concerned about the witch because to mm-hmm. the Babylonians at that time, the witch had a lot of power. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to present day, you know, reading some stuff on exorcisms and other stuff about what goes in behind magic. It's a demon going to work on behest of somebody. Um, and so I was reading in uh, the necromancer book that you edited on that portion of sorcery. Mm-hmm. Um, that the demons would would i mean they would kind of sort of do their thing but they would just salivate at the mouth just kind of put it in a nutshell they would salivate at the mouth for the opportunity for 
some sorcerer to bid them to come and do something on their behalf. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, look, I need you to go and and take out this whole tribe of people, mm-hmm. and they pounced on that. Kind of saw what you know, magic and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But, um, but anywho's. All right, so let's move to werewolves, and then we'll finish off with werewolves, and then we'll play a little bit of rapid fire. All right. All right, so werewolves. What's what's up, werewolves? We Some people might be familiar. If you've ever seen Harry Potter, there's a werewolf in Harry Potter. Werewolves. Talk to us about werewolves. Well, again, we're talking about another one of those manifestations that's as old as time itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those... These kinds of, of chimerical, you know, creatures litter the mythologies of, of people on both sides of the globe, really. Um, and you can go back, you know, to the ancient Near East and the classical world and see examples of it. You know, heck, even in the Bible, um, it's arguable that Nebuchadnezzar, you know, spent some time as some sort of were creature as, as referenced in Daniel. Mm-hmm. Um but the the lycan, um, the like that word actually comes to us from um, the king of the same name from Arcadia in classical Greece because Zeus, according to the story, turned him into a wolf. Hmm. Um, and I, I mentioned other traditions like the berserkers already, the werewolf accounts that have come out of Europe. Probably the most famous of them is the the beast of Gévaudan, which was a province in southern France. Um, and they actually made a, 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 they took some liberties with the story, but they made a movie a few years ago. But I say a few, this is really dating me. Twenty About 20 years ago, actually, there was a movie that came out called The Brotherhood of the Wolf. It was a French film that incorporated the story of the beast of Gévaudan mm-hmm. uh, in it. Um, you know, basically we're talking about a human being turning into some sort of, of canid creature, a wolf creature. You know, there are variations on the theme around the world. You know, there are skinwalkers in the desert southwest. There's there are, um, dogmen in the Midwest here in the States. Um, mm-hmm. um, Lewis and Clark, uh, there was a sergeant that actually was part of the uh, Corps of Discovery uh, who wrote extensively about the Manitou. Uh, which was a creature um, that the some of the medicine men were supposed to be able to shape shift into, um, and uh, uh, you know it's, it's it was such a such a stark story amongst the Algonquin speaking peoples in North America that there are there are a number of place names that that bear Manitou within them. Um, mm-hmm. There's Manitou Springs in Colorado. Um, the entire province of Manitoba in Canada is named after the Manitou. Um, and so, again, you know, it's the same it's the same kind of demonic connection and, and universality that you find in creatures like the vampire. You know, you're going to find some variation on this theme all across the world and not not even necessarily just the wolf or the dog, but they're all, you know, depending on what culture it may be, if, if they're um, central and East African, you know, there'll be were cheetahs and were jaguars and, or, or were leopards, excuse me. Uh, the Olmec 
the, the mother civilization of Mesoamerica worshipped a, a god uh, whose name has been lost to the sands of time, but but we we know as a, as the were jaguar god, this part jaguar, part human deity that they revered. So that's why I say that there are variations on this theme uh, all over the world, but the wolf is a very prominent theme amongst them, uh, part of the identity. And there were, um, even amongst the uh, uh, Romans, the wolf and the werewolf was a potent symbol, probably one of their most sacred symbols, the, the symbol of Romulus and Remus being suckled by the she-wolf on the Capitoline Hill is a symbol that recurs throughout uh, uh, Roman history, uh, and it is very prevalent in the archaeological record all over the Roman world, from Britain to um, you know the Middle East. Um, this story that that recounts the myth of Romulus and Remus and the founding of Rome, uh, involving the she-wolf, um, the festival of the Lupercal, the Lupercalia that occurs on February the fifteenth, um, is uh, now people. Scholars like T.P. Wiseman have pretty much made a good argument that the deity that's being revered here is Pan. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that same sort of Pan as the shepherd god, uh, in that same sort of purview, um, one of the main reasons behind that festival was to keep the, the flocks of goats and sheep um, safe. By, by you know admonishing or not admonishing but um, praising and worshiping pan uh, and it wasn't just the wolves that they wanted to protect their you know it wasn't just the wolves that they wanted to protect against it was these werewolf creatures mm-hmm. that they also wanted to protect their flocks against and so it it, it shows up in some of the, the oddest places um, and if you fast forward into the the beginning of the the early, the early modern period and especially into uh, the 18th century, the age of enlightenment, when when writing and in literacy, you know, rates are starting to go up. Right. Uh, and we have this the kind of objective influence, ironically, which wanted to sort of marginalize and peripheralize everything supernatural and just keep it empirical. Well. Unwittingly, it gave people the tools to begin to quantify and record supernatural events, um, because a lot of these reports of vampirism and and werewolfism coming out of Europe at this time are made by magistrates and attorneys and army officers and army surgeons and clergy. I mean, people with education, you could write this stuff down and articulate it. Um, so, you know, the tools of the enlightenment in an odd sort of a way become a, a valuable tool for quantifying, you know, or at least trying to quantify, uh, these entities like vampires and werewolves, um, so that, you know, coming out of places like Germany and mm-hmm. France in particular, um, you're you're beginning to see the you know more and more of these accounts of of werewolf perpetrated crimes Mm -hmm. and again the model holds true even if with the as it does with the oral traditions the folklore even if a percentage of these are not 
true werewolf cases, what do you do with the other percentage? They still represent these experiences that people had, these terrifying, in many cases, traumatic experiences uh, that people had, um, no doubt owing to the demonic nature of these kinds of manifestations. That's, that's why I call that program that I, I'm doing preternatural morphology, because it has to do with the way these manifestations occur in real space and time in various cultures. And so, yeah, the, the bottom line is that is that there is there is a degree of quantification that we can bring into a discussion of, of werewolves because of all the written accounts uh, that were made of them and certainly take into into account these traditions from uh, antiquity and and folkloric and oral traditions as well. Mm -hmm. Cool, cool. I tell you what, we have chewed up a lot on today with uh, starting off with vampires, moved to witches, and then werewolves. You're uh, not saying that we bit off more than we could chew. No, no, this is okay. uh, this no, is, no this pun, is, no pun intended, right? <laughs> this has been certainly a uh, feast, <laughs> uh, the least to say. I've done this with one other person, I want to get it back going, uh, with uh, Joe Jordan. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's called rapid fire and what okay. rapid fire is I ask you five about five different things it's pop culture and we try to do it under five minutes five minutes max but just a brief answer to what I'm asking you so and it has to deal with tonight's episode uh, pre-natural morphology mm -hmm. alright so let me know when you're ready you good? I'm ready alright first one we got Loch Ness Monster that's the question. That's yes, sir. That's the first. Okay, one. Loch Ness. Uh, tell me, tell Loch Ness me a little bit about it. Uh, uh, plesiosaur-like creatures sighted uh, at this lake in Scotland, uh, not just in the twentieth and twenty-first centuries, but apparently going back into Celtic antiquity. Uh, definitely something supernatural going on there. Okay, mermaids. Mermaids, boy, wide 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 birth we could take there um these creatures that are preserved in the oral traditions and mythologies of the world that embody both um uh fish qualities and the qualities of humans um again another one of those universals ghosts ghosts are definitely a reality um it's just that their their nature is is almost completely misunderstood they they parade as spirits of the dead that's their notoriety but they are in fact the the refaim these these dead ancestor beings and kings cool cool all right chupacabra chupacabra i, I should say see joe taylor because he he had one at one point in time in his museum, oh, uh, wow. but yeah, the, uh, the, the goat sucker from Latin American culture. Okay. Last one, sleep paralysis, sleep paralysis. Uh, same thing as old hag syndrome. Uh, people have night terrors, uh, the feeling of something sitting on their chest. Uh, it's been described since antiquity has existed as long as demons have existed. I'm sure. All right. Well, that's rapid fire. And that is our time with Dr. Judd Burden, who stopped by for part two on our Halloween series. So if you didn't catch the first one, Dr. Burden, where can people reach you? 
Uh, people can uh, follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and uh, recently Gab. Um, they can email me at professorburton at yahoo.com. Uh, websites burtonbeyond.com and tioba.org that latter one is the institute of biblical anthropology and um, got some really good deals on coursework if people want to want to begin studying uh, no time like the present particularly because of the times that we live in mm -hmm. and so that that's where they can sign up for the preternatural morphology right right okay. uh, while my websites are undergoing some redesign and, and much needed refit Okay. Uh, they, cool. Yeah, they can they can email me. Well, wonderful, wonderful. Hey, look, we appreciate y'all stopping by, tuning in uh, for our Halloween mini series. We got one more episode left in the tank uh, coming to you in the Halloween mini series that we got going on. So, until then, God bless you. God keep you. May the blood of Jesus Christ cover you. We love you, and we thank God for you. We catch you on the next one. Peace.